Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol. Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. So we have reached the conclusion of The Last Dance, and we are here to talk about Episodes 9 and 10 with you here on the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls Podcast. My name is Greg Mraz, your host, as per usual. Make sure you write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. That helps our metrics. And tell a friend to tell a friend to tell another friend about the show. So this was it. This was the conclusion of... Of the last dance. So, where we left off at the end of episode eight on our alternating timelines is we're about to tip off in game one of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals against the Indiana Pacers, and we're about to be introduced to the Utah Jazz in the 1997 Finals, who the Bulls had not yet played. So, the alternating timelines of this was interesting because, unlike the last few episodes, The 97 and the 98 finals were obviously only one year apart. There's a lot of stuff that was revealed to us in the final two episodes. The first thing I want to talk about is the flu game. So the flu game was not the flu game. It was the food poisoning game. As Jordan ends up getting hungry late at night, and decides that he wants to order food, and the only thing open in Salt Lake City after 10 o'clock is a pizza joint. And everybody knew that it was Michael Jordan that was ordering it, and he gets the pizza, he eats it, and starts to feel deathly ill. So he got food poisoning. Do you wonder whether or not the people at that pizza shop knew who he was and deliberately altered the pizza in order to make him sick? I think that's a wild conspiracy theory. Maybe it's just you don't order a pizza from the only place that's open in Salt Lake City after 10 o'clock because most everything there closes pretty damn early. And Jordan is able to come out in that game five and despite being as weak 
and as wilted as he was, he was still able to will the Bulls to a victory in that game and then come back to Chicago for game six and cap it off with his fifth title. That game was that much more unreal because the Bulls got down by 16 points in the first quarter. Jordan scored 17 points in the second quarter alone and ended up with 38 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals, and 1 block. That was amazing. The fact that he was feeling that bad and was able to play that well. And then going back to Chicago, Game 6, and Steve Kerr, who had not done anything the whole series, and for Michael to have the confidence in him to make that shot when it mattered, and knowing that he was going to get doubled on that final possession, Jordan knew it. Everybody in the building knew it. Who was Jordan going to pass it to? Was Pippen going to be his first option? Was Harper going to be his first option or second option? He decided to go to Kerr because they probably weren't expecting it. Because if the double came off of Kerr to Jordan, Kerr would be open. Jordan knew that was going to happen. Kerr's man came on him. The double, Jordan passed it out. Kerr hit that sweet little jumper from the top of the key, and it was history. And the Bulls were the 1997 NBA champions. And Steve Kerr's speech at the parade that day about how Michael was nervous in that situation and that they really should have always been planning to go to Steve. That's just the humor of Steve Kerr. Anybody that lives in the Bay Area like I do and follows the Warriors, which I do to an extent just because I do live here and have heard Steve Kerr speak publicly, you know that he's willing to be that self-deprecating and to be that much of a jokester. And to me, I finally got a much better story arc of Steve Kerr, the player. And I really enjoyed the jumping of the timelines that they did in order to give the full scope of Steve Kerr. Do they give that full scope if Steve Kerr is not the coach of the Golden State Warriors today? I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Because they didn't do that big of a jump on Tony Kukoc. They didn't do that big of a jump on, heck, Ron Harper. But the story parallels with the fathers of Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr and knowing the story behind Steve Kerr's father, Malcolm, and his death in Beirut, I think molded Steve into the type of introspective, worldly person that you see today. I think that Steve Kerr understands that there are things bigger than basketball, but yet the story showed how basketball was his grieving process his ability to internalize his frustration and his sadness and be able to execute at a high level. And this is somebody that had to work for everything he had. He didn't have any scholarships coming out of college until a last-minute offer from Arizona. And he was somebody that was a role player throughout his entire career in the NBA. But you heard it from the earlier episode that Steve Kerr had to earn the respect of Michael Jordan. And he did. And... I thought it was kind of a loaded question to ask her if Jordan and him had talked about their fathers. What I didn't know, and we actually found this out on the Pac-12 Perspectives podcast, which is the Pac-12 Network's newest podcast, that Kerr, who was on with my good friend Ashley Adamson, 
And Kerr actually brought up a little side bet that he and Jordan had during the 1997 National Championship game between North Carolina and Arizona. So it seemed like there was a kinship that developed between Jordan and Kerr. Obviously, that title game and the relationship between North Carolina and Arizona was not touched on in the documentary, but we got a much better idea of Steve Kerr before basketball and how Steve Kerr's personal tragedy turned into a career triumph and why he is an amazing person to follow not just as a basketball figure, but also as a guardian of social justice in the modern age. I admire Steve Kerr because of how he can take basketball, put it into perspective, and focus on what's more important in life. That is what I love about Steve Kerr. And I think that the documentary did a great job of giving Steve Kerr his due. So now let's move forward to 1998 and the Eastern Conference Finals. I forgot that Larry Bird was the coach of the Pacers. I had no idea. And I was very curious as to why he was not the coach for very long. But in any event, the Bulls won the first two games of that series. The Pacers won the second two. Reggie Miller hitting the big shot in game four. And the Bulls almost winning game four. And Jordan, with .7 seconds left on a double clutch, was able to pump up a three that rimmed in and out. That was the greatness of Michael Jordan that... In that little time, Larry Bird, that was amazing. Miller hits that shot, and they showed it perfectly in Episode 9. Miller hits that shot, and you see the expression of Larry Bird knowing it's not over. Larry Bird knew the danger of what Michael Jordan could be and that they could very well lose that game, and they almost did. One thing that I didn't know is that that was only the second series during the Bulls' championship runs, meaning the six years that they won the title, that they had gotten to seven games in a single series. So they said it in there. That was the hardest-fought playoff series that they ever had, at least in the championship years that they won, the hardest-fought series that they ever had. So they split the next two games. They come back to Chicago for Game 7, And they talk about that jump ball, the fact that they were able to win a jump ball, that Jordan wins the jump ball against 7-3 Rick Smits. And the Bulls were able to hit a three on that possession, and Reggie Miller feels like the entire tide shifts against them. And because of that jump ball, I loved how he pointed to that one moment, that one measly jump ball with 6.45, I think it was, left in the fourth quarter, could turn the tide of the game, and for the Pacers, turn the tide of their season. And I love this scene at the end where Michael Jordan basically tells Larry Bird to go F himself jokingly and tells him to go work on his golf game. I mean, that's the admiration that those two had for each other, the respect that they had for each other. And I loved how Reggie Miller always called Michael Jordan the black cat the amount of respect that Miller had for MJ and how he knew the greatness of Michael Jordan and understood that you had to give your absolute 100% best in order to beat him. And Reggie was not able to get over that mountaintop. From there, at least chronologically, we go 
to the 98 finals in Utah. So first off, I didn't realize the reputation that Jazz fans have today was the same that they did back in 1998. I didn't realize how loud that place was and how intense those fans were. Quite frankly, a lot of them seemed pretty nasty. Now, I know that there have been discussions and stories about some issues with Utah Jazz fans nowadays, but it was a nasty enough environment to where the Jordan kids, you saw it, Jeff Jordan and Marcus Jordan, weren't allowed to come to Utah. Like, Michael did not want them there because of that environment. The Bulls lose a tightly contested Game 1 that Phil said it should be in the bag. You heard that audio from him on the bench. They come out, they win a tightly contested Game 2, and then in Game 3, they hold Utah to 31 points in the first half and 54 total. I love that clip of Jerry Sloan looking at the box score. He's like, is this finished? Wait, is that the score? Because he was just so befuddled that they had lost by that many. Then the Bulls win Game 4, and they hope to close it out in Game 5, but Utah just barely scrapes by. And then in Game 6, you get that iconic moment that Jordan getting the layup down one, stripping Malone from behind, and then hitting that iconic shot over Russell. And the Bulls getting that final stop and winning that sixth title. Bob Costas said it in the documentary. It was one of the most beautiful sequences of basketball that he had ever seen. Scottie Pippen's back in that game, like watching him go to and from the locker room trying to get treatment on his back, that was painful. I don't even think people realized the extent to which he was hurting and the fact that he said he was using himself as a decoy. And I felt like the last two episodes painted Pippen in a much better light than he had been painted previously. I also had no idea about Dennis Rodman going off to do WrestleMania with Hulk Hogan in between games three and four of the finals. Like, you have the gall to leave the team after game three, go to Auburn Hills, Michigan, and do that event and miss practice? Like, I understand that Dennis was being Dennis and they wanted to make sure to give him as much leash to keep him in the zone, but you can't just go off and miss practice during the finals. Like, it's the effing finals. You don't do that. Yet it was interesting to me that Phil Jackson was such a good manager of egos that he was able to not let it bother the rest of the Bulls. And it didn't seem like the Bulls were even that bothered by it during the finals. More so, it was the media trying to make it so that the Bulls had a problem with Dennis Rodman going off. I still wouldn't have done it, but then again, I didn't live by Dennis Rodman's rules. So, a couple of things that I wish that they had included. How come we didn't get anything from Carl Malone? I would have loved to have seen something from Carl Malone. I feel like you cannot encapsulate the final two championships of the Chicago Bulls without getting something from Carl Malone. I would have also have liked to have gotten something from Jerry Sloan as well, although I'm not necessarily so sure 
what Jerry Sloan's health is at this point. I am glad that we at least got something from John Stockton in this, and Stockton's great appreciation for the greatness of Michael and him analyzing the beef that Brian Russell was trying to throw toward Michael Jordan and MJ basically just taking it out on him during both finals, especially that final shot in Game 6 in Utah. I really wish that we had gotten some sort of backstory on the legendary trash talk that Scottie Pippen gave Carl Malone at the free throw line in the 97 finals. I felt like that was absent, and I would have loved to have seen that come up in the documentary. I think that that got teased a lot in the promos leading up to episodes 9 and 10, and we didn't get it, and that's something that really disappointed me. But I also loved one of the final scenes in Utah where they're coming back to the hotel and you see this mob of people in the hotel as MJ's coming through and they're going up to his room and he had been talking about the piano bar in his room at shoot-around, having a couple beers at the piano bar and he's playing piano inside of his hotel room with all those photographers and PR people and just the culmination of one of the most amazing careers in basketball. Little did he know at the time he was going to come back and play for the Wizards, but at that time, looking at that shot and looking at that moment, it was the culmination of something amazing. One thing I was also glad to know is that in this episode, Jerry Reinsdorf finally got his. Everybody had been waiting for it. When was Jerry Reinsdorf going to get his coming to him? Well, he got it. When he's talking about the financial implications of bringing everybody back and basically saying that these guys weren't going to be worth their market value, this was the classic Jerry Reinsdorf being cheap move. And when Michael Jordan saw that on the iPad that the interviewer showed him inside his house, showing him the Jerry Reinsdorf quote, Jordan, as you probably expect, thought that was a pretty typical answer from Jerry Reinsdorf. And the notoriously cheap persona that has come with the Reinsdorf name was finally exposed in the last dance. Because the Bulls, if they wanted to run it back, which Michael wanted to do, Michael wanted to do it again. And I think Michael knew that if he had his entire cast of characters back, that they probably could have won a seventh title. And he wanted to win a seventh title. But everything had been set out before the season that this was going to be it. Jerry Krause saying that Phil Jackson was not going to be back next year was basically the finality of the Bulls dynasty. And the Bulls acted that season like it was their last dance. And for Jerry Reinsdorf to say that he offered Phil the opportunity to come back, was that Reinsdorf knowing that this documentary was going to be made and trying to save face? Was that a true story or was that something that Reinsdorf made up? In any event, the documentary made it pretty clear that the damage between Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson was so great to the point where that relationship could not be repaired. And thus, they both had to go in their own ways, Krause remaining as the GM of the Bulls and Phil Jackson going into a mini-retirement before coaching the Los Angeles Lakers. The culmination of the last dance with Phil having everybody write something that was special about that team and putting it into the coffee can and then burning it, 
I thought that we got to see a real depth of emotion from Michael Jordan that we did not see really at all from him during his career. And I thought that that was a really special moment to end the documentary and to be able to understand how much that season meant to Michael, how much it meant to Scotty, how much it meant to Phil, how much it meant to Steve Kerr. I don't necessarily know if we got a real depth of how much it meant to Dennis Rodman, but I really don't know if we'd ever be able to find that out. One thing I did forget when talking about these last two episodes is the relationship between Michael Jordan and Gus Lett. Gus Lett, his personal security, the former Chicago cop who ran security at the United Center and then became Jordan's personal protector, as Jordan said it. And this guy that substituted in as a father figure and how Gus getting sick really took a toll on Michael and Gus coming back to the United Center during Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers, that was a really special moment for me. Watching the bond between those two and how much Gus meant to Michael, like, I don't know if you could really think in most worlds that a security guard and a superstar could be best friends, but those guys became like father and son, and Michael had him everywhere. And I think that you would ask Michael, who was one of the most important people in his life during that time, he would probably say Gus Lett. And it's understandable based on what we know about Gus from what The Last Dance gave us. And so with that, that's it for The Last Dance. I loved it. The whole country loved it. I think that it was something that had been in the works for a long time. And we finally got to pull back the curtain on everything in regards to the 90s era of the Bulls. I think at the onset, we thought that this was just going to be about the 97-98 season. But the jumping of timelines back to when Jordan was in high school, basically any timeline that had any relevancy to do with the dynasty or to do with the profile of one of the players, they were able to dive deep in pretty much every single category that they needed to in order to encompass the full story. Speaking of pulling back the curtain, we are going to have a long-form discussion on The Last Dance as a whole with the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, a Chicago sports and culture podcast. Those guys are going to join me later in the week. That episode should be out on Friday. We hope that you have enjoyed these reviews of The Last Dance. We hope that we'll be able to talk some more relevant basketball news soon. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And as always, Go Bulls! This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.